So now we're talking about from 1993 to 2003, I have given you a timeline of how many massacres had happened, even though the bulk of Hindus had moved out of the village in 1990. These were just some people who were left behind that, you know, even them, even they were killed. Every time there is, and this is a pattern, they're not killed like that. Every time there's a pattern, every time the they sense that there is some kind of normalcy happening, every time they sense that, okay, Hindus might come back for good, or every time they see any kind of political process starting, this has happened. And this has happened till this point. You would remember just a few months ago, there was a series of targeted killings in Kashmir. <laughs> Namaste, everyone. I am delighted to be here on Sangam Talks platform, my favorite once again. And as usual, excited to be speaking to this eclectic group of audience who are present here today. Thank you so much for making time. Uh, let me just start with uh, extending my best wishes to everyone for the new year. I hope 2020 is a normal year and an event-free year for us after quite eventful uh, last two years. For the talk today, and I thought I will divide it into two parts. Uh, I thought we'll do a, something different. I'll divide it into two parts because this is month of January and month of January is a very painful month for Hindus of Kashmir. It was, as everyone knows now, it was on 19th of January 1990 that we finally realized that in order to save ourselves from mass massacre and to survive, we will have to leave our home of 5,000 years yet again. And this was going to be our seventh exodus. I think that realization happened on 19th January and all the mosques playing and all those stories. Everyone knows about it. The story of 19th January is quite well etched in our uh, national consciousness now. I've written about it. Many other eminent people have written about it, talked about it. There are um, uh, eyewitness accounts because we were all there. I was there. So all that has been said. However, I just want to, over the years, I have realized people think that it was just that one incident or that one month that you know that created this entire upheaval and led to the exodus i i want to say that there were massacres after the 19th of january after the exodus that happened and those massacres haven't stopped for a long time and those massacres have pretty much been forgotten and they're never talked about you will never hear about them if you do google searches you will be surprised couple of them are mentioned maybe, but we don't have enough. We, there were no eyewitnesses. We don't have enough, the no investigation of course was done on it, but there is no, um, there are no journalistic accounts also um, in long form that we would know, but it's important to remember those massacres because they were not insignificant or irrelevant. And it's important that when we talk about future, we also remember those things. And I will connect it and I will tell you why these lesser known but not insignificant um, massacres or events uh, are important for how we decide uh, what future of Jammu and Kashmir is going to be, especially for the minorities. 
And in the second part, I was thinking that I'm going to broadly tell you what is going to, what's happening on the ground since I follow it very closely. So I thought I will tell you what is the current situation and um, where are we? I see because I, on my social media and in my interaction with a lot of people, I see a lot of frustrations steeping in. They say, okay, we did Article 370, we did reorganization, now what? So um, we'll talk about that a little bit. And if we have time after that, and if the organizers so wish, I'll be happy to answer any audience questions. So um, today I want to tell you or remind you, or for some people, this may be completely new information about three or four massacres that as painful as they are, as I said earlier, we must remember them in the context of modern history of Kashmir and understand why return of Hindus to Kashmir is not as easy as we think. A lot of people say everything is seems okay now. It's never going to be perfect. Last gun will never, there will never be a time when there will, you know, we cannot wait till the last gun is silent because that will never happen or that will be a long time. Obviously, we're not going to wait till that time. So why are people not packing up bags and going back again? Why is there uh, still a problem, even with the nationalist government in power in the center why is there a problem still in going back and i will explain to you that why it is not as easy as picking up our bags and returning um just you know as if we are coming back from a vacation it's my firm belief and i have written it many times that peace in kashmir for the last 30 years at least or has been a period of lull or a period of you know between two violent phases of peace as defined in Kashmir is a lull between two uh, violent phases of terrorism. So every time there is a slight noticeable lull or there is some talk of return of Hindus, terrorists have immediately given us a sign that while they accept all of us returning as tourists, permanent return is not acceptable to them. That has been given, those signs have been given to us time and again and again and again. And there is a pattern. Just because we don't see the pattern or nobody is drawing that pattern doesn't mean it does not exist. So that is one of the reasons why a lot of people in my community and all the people who have suffered, they've said they've taken a while that the seventh exodus will be our last exodus. When we return now, we're not going to come back again. And for that, we have to make such, you know, uh, uh, the process has to be so, um, has to be such that we are not thrown out again. So first, I want to talk about Sangrampura massacre. I have no way of knowing, I wish we were doing this in person and we would do a, um, a head count or a hand count. How many of you have heard of Sangrampura massacre? I don't think many have. Uh, after 19, just let me give you a little um, background. After 1990, you will recall that assembly elections for about seven years, there was no political process, nothing. After six years or seven years, uh, assembly elections were conducted in Jammu and Kashmir in 1996, preceded by Lok Sabha polls. So I think Lok Sabha polls were in May and um, May roughly that time period and uh, assembly elections were then held in September. This was the, these were the first 
elections held after insurgency. Everyone remembers that is an, an important landmark. A, re a return to so-called democracy after a very turbulent phase. So um, the spread of terrorism to Jammu had not yet happened. It was not complete yet. It was still around, terrorism was still around in Kashmir um, Valley. And even though this marked the reintroduction of democracy with elected government in place, that is the time the terrorists realized that this is the time to hit back again after six years. On March 22, 1997, Islamist terrorists in Sangrampura, a village 20 miles south of Srinagar, burst into homes of Hindus. Remember, Exodus had already happened, but very few people had stayed back. Very few. You could count them on fingers. So these people were now attacked. So they bur terrorists burst into the homes of Hindus, took away seven men, and killed them point blank. And they were all from one extended family. No one has been caught, of course. We have no idea who these terrorists were. Um, all we know were the, that they were trained by Pakistan and they were Islamist terrorists. Um, but we don't know how they got into this village, except that people who were around that day, they have said that they couldn't find their way into this small, tiny hamlet, small, tiny village if they did not have local support. This was the first massacre of seven people after 1990, that horrendous uh, thing in the valley. We don't have, I have tried to look for it. I have tried to find the families of those who were, um, uh, you know, um, killed that day, but I haven't been successful. All I know from the newspaper reports, and I, I mean, I knew around that, but that seven people were killed that day, seven men were killed that day, and then no investigation was done. This was the first massacre, which was the message was sent that anytime Hindus even contemplate coming back home, dead bodies riddled with bullets of those few Hindus who were left in valley will be gifted to them. Before this, this was in valley in um, Sangrampura, before this, just in August 14 of 1993, again, another story that has been completely wiped off. A passenger bus in Kishtwar, in Dura district, was stopped and 15 Hindu passengers were identified and gunned down. There are, I have looked into the um, you know, gone back into the newspaper archives and in very tiny, um, uh, you know, um, newspaper columns in one corner, I have found this mentioned in the fourth page, the sixth column or somewhere um, buried deep inside that. But I knew from my family contacts that there was a family friend here and his name was Mr. Kanayal Duda. He was shot dead in that uh, massacre. And we heard about that. I remember because I was in Delhi and I remember that uh, the fa family friends had said that, you know, um, he had been shot dead, even though this family had left Kashmir. But I couldn't find anything about this massacre. I couldn't find any more names. Many years later now, just a few years ago, 
Kanhaya Lal's daughter, uh, thanks to social media, advent of social media, she spoke up and she narrated this story. She said her father's body was delivered to her, to them in Jammu, 16 hours after the incident, and it was delivered in a passenger bus. It was not even wrapped in cloth or anything. The body was delivered almost naked. Blood was dripping out of the holes made by bullets in the body. There was no postmortem done for, I think, 24 hours. No attempt was made to reach the family. It was only when the family tried to find out what had happened to him and um, they found out. And when they asked the police that who had done it, they said, well, go to Keshtavar and find out. No proper documentation of those dead were known. We know 16 people were killed from the newspaper reports, but I don't have names of other 15 people. So this massacre, this Kishtawar bus massacre, where 16 people were identified as Hindus, put to, uh, made to stand in a separate line and then killed, this has also been wiped clean from any memory or any history book. You can do a Google search or you can find. You won't find much. And if you do, if you are lucky, um, uh, you know, uh, the victim whose daughter spoke, she found two newspaper cuttings and she put them up on social media, you know, very small uh, mention of 16 Hindus who had died. Other than that, you, will, you won't find anything. Next big massacre was Vandhama massacre. This was so big that it was difficult for newspapers and television channels, there was only one or two at that time, uh, or political parties at that time to hide it because it was so big. It was not seven odd people killed or 16 odd people killed. This was now 23 Hindus in the town of Vandhama were killed uh, on January 25th, the night between January 25th and 26th, January 1998. The victims included four children and nine women. I think at that point, Lashkar Toeba or Hezbollah Mujahideen had was blamed for uh, the massacre. And I think they had taken responsibility as well. There is lone survivor, unlike other massacres, there is lone survivor of this massacre was also the only eyewitness. His name is Vinod Kumar Dhar. He was then a young boy of 14 years. He hid himself in an attic and it was from him that we heard what had happened on that night in Vandahama. Terrorists struck on the intervening night of January 25th and January 26th of 1998. I think around 25 terrorists in army fatigue descended on this tiny village at about 10 p.m. in the night. It was a Sunday. The terrorists first entered the house of Motilal Bhatt, this was, again, just few families who had decided to stay back after the exodus of 1990s. So these were just a handful of families. They found the house of this um, a local chemist, Mr. Motilal Bhatt. From here, from his house, all of them entered his house. From here, groups of four terrorists were sent to other Hindu houses and rest were asked to in the village. So. Another gentleman, Motilal, was this person who was a, um, a local chemist. He was very well known for his 
you know, he treated everyone who came to him with compassion. His family had come from other parts of the, uh, you know, um, valley uh, for an engagement proposal for one of his children. So there was quite a festive um, environment in his family. Another Hindu's house, his name was Badrinath. Important to remember these names because these are people who took bullets for us. So it's very important to go through this slowly, remember the names and go through this history because this is our history and they have been forgotten for too long. So in Badrinath's house, there was a knock same night. Terrorists clad in army fatigue asked for permission to enter. He thought these were army men. That's what we are thinking. He did not understand that these were terrorists disguised as army. It was only after Vandahama that, you know, um, many people realized that Pakistani terrorists from Lashkar Tarba and uh, Hizbul Mujahideen and other outfits, they routinely disguised themselves in army fatigue. So for Badrinath's family, it was not unusual for them to have guests come in. And uh, as is common in any Indian family, they, uh, told, they uh, invited them in, didn't sense any trouble. The terrorists demanded tea, which was served to them. Around 11 PM that night, Badrinath's family came to know that other Hindu families living there were entertaining similar guests. They still did not know what was going on. After the tea was served to them, the family asked them when would they leave. The terrorists assured them that, don't worry, we will all leave. An hour later, a radio set carried by the terrorists turned on and someone on the other side of the radio said, Pura ho gaya hai. entire village has been cordoned. That was the moment they were waiting for. One of the gunmen stood up and people who had served them tea, they ordered to shoot the family members down. This young 14 year old boy from the family, Vinod Kumar Dhar, he hid himself, he ran and hid himself in the attic and was not found. And later, many years ago, he told this story. He heard bursts of gunfire and people screaming. He had hidden himself under, I think, um, heaps of dried cow dung or something is what he said. Within 15 minutes, everything fell silent. And Vinod Kumar Ghar was now the lone survivor amongst 23 Kashmiri Hindus who were killed that day in Vandama. Terrorists before escaping burnt the house of Motilal, the uh, chemist who had initially given them um, shelter. And they also burned the local temple. In other three houses, they had also resorted to indiscriminate firing and they had killed. And by the time they were done, after the guns fell silent, there were 23 dead bodies lying in three or four different homes. Vinod Kumar Dhar came to see the fate of his five family members. He screamed and shouted. Remember, this is not a big city. This is a very small town. The 
community, the Muslims in that village who lived, they had all gone to the local mosque. And it was the day that Muslims celebrate uh, before Eid is Shabe Qadr. It's called the, the festival or, or the event is called Shabe Qadr before. Um, and this is the day they spend, I think, in mosques. The story is that they were so, remember it's a small town, it's middle of the, if anybody has been to small village towns in the middle of um, uh, winter night, it's very, it's, it's very quiet. You know, you can hear, even, a, even if somebody is shrieking, even if somebody is screaming, you can hear through the village. You know, it rips through the village, you can hear it. But somehow the story is that at the time the shootings would happen and people were screaming, the loudspeakers in the mosques were put, were, you know, the volume was increased. So no one heard. No one heard of the massacre that was happening. Vinod Kumar Ghar went around screaming, the lone survivor went down screaming and shrieking. He could not find one person to help him. Later, 23 pyres were erected and 14-year-old boy Vinod, he went from pyre to pyre, consigning all those dead bodies to flames. When journalists visited Vandhama next morning, they say, and I saw a report in Indian Express from that time and many other local newspapers also, they said even the hostile media, even the otherwise hostile media said that the houses looked like slaughterhouses. Bullet-ridden bodies were lying in a pool of blood. And there's this one story that I can never forget, and that gives me uh, nightmares even now that there were, because remember there were women and children also killed in this massacre. A mother had unsuccessfully tried to save her infant by hiding him in her bosom, in her lap. But both got killed together. The story from one of the newspaper, uh, you know, journalists who went there, he said, the cop tried to separate the mother and the child after death, and he couldn't. There was burning smell of human flesh everywhere. No convictions, no arrests, no investigation. That's one Dhamma massacre. And there, there was Nadimbarg massacre, where 24 Hindu uh, Hindus in the village of Nadimarg in Pulwama district of Jammu and Kashmir were killed by Lashkar-e-Toyba. This was on 23rd March, 2003. So now we're talking about from 1993 to 2003, I have given you a timeline of how many massacres had happened, even though the bulk of Hindus had moved out of the village in 1990. These were just some people who were left behind that, you know, even them, even they were killed. Every time there is, and this is a pattern, they're not killed like that. Every time there's a pattern, every time the they sense that there is some kind of normalcy happening, every time they sense that, okay, Hindus might come back for good, or every time they see any kind of political process starting, this has happened. And this has happened till this point. You would remember just a few months ago, there was a series of targeted killings in Kashmir. A chemist, Mr. Makhalal Bindru was shot dead. And then a Golgappa seller was, who had come from Bihar just to sell, um, um, you know, do his local business. He was shot dead, and so many others were uh, shot dead. So, 
in nadi marg 11 men 11 women and two toddlers so the reason i insist on counting women and children is because you must understand that this is not a war fought at principles this is not a war where women and children are um, spared this is not the war where toddlers are spared this is this is the kind of evil we are dealing with one of the survivors of nadi marg uh, massacre is mr mohan bhat he escaped death by jumping out of the first floor window while others were being rounded by terrorists but his father mother sister and uncle were not so lucky i think he works as a lab assistant in jammu right now later he found all of them were dead it is said that the local policemen had accompanied the terrorists in nadi marg and they helped them identify the homes of kashmiri hindus the policemen fled later of course and they were never found but all eyewitness stories say that there was no way in the middle of the night for terrorists who were not who did not belong to the village for them to know unless there was local support so we have seen through these massacres we have seen um two patterns developing now a every single massacre had local support it was impossible it's impossible for terrorists to come and you know do targeted killings unless they get their intelligence and unless they get support from local community it's impossible it is impossible for terrorism to even survive in any place unless there is support of unless you know there isn't any support of local community and i'll tell you why people who pick up guns at, at any given of point are not in majority people who pick up guns even at the peak of terrorism in kashmir uh were only 3000 4000 people at the peak there have never been more than that you know people who have said how to just a bunch of 3000 4000 gun wielding terrorists wreak so much mayhem because they have support as i have always said no terrorism survives without local support unless there is um, support it will not survive so two patterns now come up a the local support and b any time we talk about um any kind of normalcy for lack of a better word or any kind of rehabilitation we see this happening so any time anyone tells you because i see a lot of this happening then why do things are getting better now why and they are in many ways why do people not go back what is keeping them back this is what is keeping them back because a there has never been any convictions first of all we know that there have never been any on all these massacres are told no convictions have happened and there are many more if i sit to count them we will be here till tomorrow night but a no convictions have been done and what are we going to do about the local support that made the terrorism thrive do we know that that doesn't exist right now and if we know that doesn't exist that that still exists no one can tell us how are hindus to be sent back again to be made sitting ducks that is the question that we have to ask ourselves the point is that all these massacres they were planned they were targeted they were thoroughly thought about these were not indiscriminate killings mindless killings 
and killings and terrorism and murder and mayhem didn't just happen in 1989-90 it has been constantly happening it has it got better a little while ago you know for a while but then it has constantly been happening every time as i said and i keep insisting on this every time there has been any talk of safe return of minorities this is what has been happening the genocide that started with the advent of islam in kashmir has never really ended so this month kashmiri hindus commemorate as holocaust month and when we were talking about this talk i did speak to aparna ji and i told her i said you know this entire month is commemorated as the holocaust month 19th january we remember as exodus day because that's when it all began and after that we remember try to remember all these um um massacres and killings because no one else will remember them and it is our responsibility to go back as painful as it is to go back talk about it again see why it happened and learn lessons from them a lot of people for lack of a better word blame us that you know for not moving ahead the reason we keep going back is because we have i don't think personally that we have learned all the lessons if we had learned all the lessons then we probably would have also um uh, put together a special investigation team maybe not to uh, um you know investigate every murder or every massacre but at least the events of 19th january 1990 which led to the exodus this is something that has been my consistent demand for years now that please have a special investigation team put together and i even on this 19th i requested home ministry of india and i requested the prime minister that there should be a special investigation team set up and they should actually talk find out we know and we have been telling people but there is no one official narrative of the exodus there is one, no one official narrative where people have if you go back suppose there is somebody who is trying to uh, as a scholar trying to find out what happened even the first um, stop of your research for many young people is wikipedia you will see that it says that there are conflicting reports about why we lose left that's that's a dagger through our heart why should there be conflicting reports there are no conflicting reports we are telling you what is the truth we are telling you why we left but that is why i have been insisting for a while and so many other organizations that please put a sid please assign an sid for this let's have one narrative and then we can move forward on this but during this holocaust through your platform i pay my tributes to all those who felt terrorist bullets and renew the vow that all hindus of kashmir have taken the seventh exodus will be our last there are no two points about it there will be no eighth exodus now when we return we will not return to be killed or thrown out again this time it will be for good from here i am um, i see that we are running out of time from here i will move a little to current times just a cut to current times to explain where do we stand now 
after Article 370 was abrogated and reorganization of the state was done, huge credit to government of India for doing this, huge credit to Narendra Modi government for doing this. This was not easy. I have said it again and again that in my lifetime, I had not thought I would see this day. I did not think that anybody will have the guts to even remove this. And if you go back to my last talk on Sangam talks, I have talked in detail about Article 370 and why it needed to go. So we're not going to go there again. Um, today, I just want to talk a little bit about this stalemate that we are in and what we should do from here and where we should go from here. Kashmir issue has to be looked from two prisms. There is no other way. One, you have to look at the security and the terrorism issue. That will continue. That is the matter between the Indian state, Indian security forces and the terrorists. And at this point, at any given time, Indian state is uh, in a dominant position. There is no way that they are going to allow terrorists writ to be run large in um, the state anytime soon, or it has never happened um, in the in past so many years now. Um, the government has come down very hard, harshly on terrorism, rightly so. Um, OGWs or overground um, workers of the terrorists who do not people who do not pick up the gun, but they act as allies of these terrorists. They have now been um, identified as they are now identified as terrorists. Allies of terrorists are terrorists too, and these people, you know, it's, it's the whole intelligence um, working, and so all that security thing is working. That's not going to go away. Let's not kid ourselves. Kashmir issue is a huge geopolitical issue between Kashmir and Pakistan, I mean, India and Pakistan and China is involved. So it's not going to go away. That issue will remain and Indian state is more than capable of handling it. But then we have to look at other side also. That issue we're not worried about. Um, the other issue is restoring normalcy in the valley now. And what does the normalcy mean? The timeline set by the union government after August 5 events were that after reorganization, there will be delimitation and then statehood will be restored. Because commonly held belief is that the only normalcy that happens can happen when the political process starts. After all, we are a democracy and in a democracy, the definition of normal is for the political process to be started, people to be, people can vote themselves and people can vote their own government, they can have representatives, um, uh, you know, who represent them in the state assembly. So the reorganization act of 2019 said the number of assembly seats in union territory of JNK will be raised from 107 to 114 through fresh delimitation process. This task was entrusted to delimitation commission headed by retired Justice Ranjana Desai. Since 24 of those 114 seats are with, we always assign them to park occupied Kashmir, the part of Kashmir that is occupied by Pakistan and they remain unrepresented. We don't touch them. So those 24 seats are there. The effective strength of JNK assembly is supposed to go from 83 to 90. Now there is no official draft yet. On March 2021, this committee got an extension 
for one year. So they are supposed to give their bio, final draft in March of 2022. Hopefully we'll know what the final draft is then, but there have been leaks or you know drafts in the newspapers and we sort of know what is going on. The effective strength of JNK is supposed to go up from 83 to 90. The draft that was unofficially shared by the media, the government hasn't said anything, and I cannot vouch for um, how correct this is, but this has been going on by and large from the information from the sources. Um, it said that the total seats in Jammu region from existing 37 will go up to 43, and Kashmir will have one additional seat and will have 47 seats. The districts were reorganized and they have increased from 12 to 20 since last delimitation, which happened in 1995. This draft also proposed reservation of nine seats in JNK uh, for scheduled tribes and seven seats reserved for scheduled caste. Um, so the allocation, this allocation seems to have been done on uh, 2011 census, and I'll tell you why that's a problem with a lot of Jammu, um, you know, community in Jammu. The first, the Gupkar Alliance or the People's Alliance of Gupkar Declaration, what they're officially known as, which comprise five mainstream parties, uh, National Conference, PDP, CPM, Awami National Conference, and I think JNK People's Movement, they uh, came together and um, they basically, you know, the draft that was shared, uh, they said they don't accept it. And um, they clearly said that any attempt to empower Jammu um, will be, um, in no uncertain terms, will be um, not acceptable to them. Jammu cannot be empowered. Uh, the population is the main factor for delimitation, but um, other such aspects like terrain, communication facilities, connectivity, etc., also need to be considered in a place like Jammu and Kashmir. We have to note that Jammu region doesn't have a linear topography and connectivity is not very good still in remote areas. Uh, I was doing some research and I found out that even on the basis of 2011 census, which is not acceptable to Jammu, um, uh, region at all, by the way, because they say that this was this was a fraudulent uh, census. Jammu uh, was not the counting was not done very correctly in Jammu, and they've been saying that you know they do not accept the census. But even if we do, 46 seats in Kashmir division are spread across. I noticed about 16,000 square kilometers, and whereas 37 seats in Jammu are spread over. 26,000 square kilometers. So the way to understand this is that Kashmir has one assembly segment for every 346 kilometers and Jammu has one for every 710 square kilometers. So people who are following this and who are working this, the activists who are working on this, they are saying that this draft currently is not favorable for Jammu. It is not even, and if you go by the census, the, uh, then the population of Kashmir is more than Jammu, but they are not accepting those numbers as well. So they're saying that numbers were um, fudged and credible. My point is, even though you accept the census of um, uh, 2011, this draft is still not acceptable to me 
because you have to understand the topography and you have to understand the um, you know um, how people are spread across in cities and the density of population even if you go by this census this draft is not very favorable or equitable uh, or should be acceptable to jammu it does not do jammu any um, favor so um, as, as i said there are vast disparities in um, electorates of various constituencies and there are many activists who have done these reports and i'll be happy to share those numbers with anybody who wants them after the talk that how the top three constituencies of jammu division are have um, you know a disproportionate number of um, people and uh, the same doesn't happen in kashmir so this is this was not done very scientifically let's just say this um so therefore we've reached a stalemate political process remains tied to delimitation and then to elections so to sum it all at the moment there are multiple voices in jnk there are dogras of jammu who say that after years of rightly so that after years of being discriminated they now deserve a fair representation in the political process then there are displaced hindus of kashmir who are saying all this political process is meaningless for them unless their issues are resolved they want people responsible for the genocide to be held accountable and they also want the government to speak to them about their demand of panun kashmir which is what they have been saying that they want a land carved out a piece of homeland carved out specially for them because they feel that after going through this genocide for centuries and after going through after our population has been reduced from 100% to 2% they now deserve a bit of their own homeland which they call pan kashmir and they would like the government to speak to them about the viability of this so that is another constituency of this um of people and then there are of course valley based politicians who represent the people there supposedly and they would have um, loved to return to status quo which is not going to happen so now they are demanding that uh, somehow kashmir valley still remains uh, you know has the upper hand in the political process so this is where we are as far as the political process is concerned nowhere in the sense this delimitation process when it comes finally the final draft as i'm expecting for it to come in month of march is when we will see um how people react to it and what government of india does at that point but as far as the day to day situation in kashmir is concerned i if you look at the broader picture i have found the tenure of present lg uh mr manoj sinha very effective um you all must have noticed how republic day was celebrated across the valley and all government institutions for the first time participated in the valley they wore a festive look like rest of the india same happened in the independence day this time for the first time independence on independence day and on republic day there were no uh, restrictions imposed in the valley the communication was on otherwise for two or three days before that I mean, phone lines would be or internet would be uh, disrupted and all that none of that has happened so lg's mandate is restoring day to day law and order and closing the gap of trust deficit both in valley and jammu region and i think his leadership during covid period 
and um, otherwise also he has done it remarkably well in his limited mandate what his mandate was to restore the um, um, you know law and order and to um, you know have people in Kashmir and in Jammu Valley feel that the government is working for each one of them every day on a day-to-day -day basis he has succeeded in that uh, security challenges remain targeted killings returned to Kashmir Valley, as I said, a few months ago, because there was some talk of um, the talk, and then it stopped immediately, if you would have noticed, that there was talk that people who had taken the new um, domicile status now, because it's now they can take, they can buy land, the minute that narrative started, the targeted killings happened. And then there was, it was quiet again. And, um, you know, it's we haven't heard of anybody wanting to go back again for a while. So that's where this is. Larger issues in JNK will remain, will remain and will be resolved with time and most important patience. It feels frustrating at times, but then at that time, we must remember that the series of systemic reforms that we have seen being witnessed in both Jammu, Kashmir and Ladakh, they make it amply clear, as I kept keep saying, that this, the events of August 5th, were not merely a political statement or ideological commitment of a political party. It was a lot more than that. Um, the first major reform has been passing the domicile law, which increased the categories of those who can claim a domicile status. Um, and also recognizes all stakeholders who had been disenfranchised earlier, people like me, and um, had kept us out of the political mainstream. The new law now paves way for every citizen of India to become domicile of JNK after 15 years of residence. The time can be changed anytime from 15 years to lesser than that, if people so decide. Uh, sanitation workers, Safai Karabcharis, Gurkhas, uh, West Pakistan refugees, they have now been, um, who, after years of being denied um, equal rights, they have now been covered under domicile law. They are now eligible for government jobs and any affirmative action guaranteed by the Indian constitution. Um, in fact, uh, at the last count, I know that there were about, uh, I want to say 47 lakh of new domicile certificates issued. So these are new stakeholders in Jammu and Kashmir, 47 new lakh, uh, 47 uh, new domiciles. And this includes West Pakistan refugees, uh, Valmikis, Gorkhas. Dalits in JNK were kept out of the benefit of benefits that Indian constitution guarantees them to them elsewhere in the country. But those rights have been um, restored. Children of women who married outside JNK, like me, were deprived of inheritance rights. But our the new domicile law corrects this gender disparity, and now I can claim my uh, uh, property of my um, uh, parents. So, Article three seventy abrogation was really restoration of human rights, and government remains committed to that um, charter. It no longer takes a constitutional amendment to bring about change in Jammu and Kashmir. For me to sum it all up, that is the most important part, that you do not need 
to have a constitutional amendment now to change anything if you want to change. It just is, you know, but things in democracies, it's like an 18-wheeler bus that is trying to make a turn. It's not going to go like a small scooter. It will take a while. It's, it has to take a long turn. It has to take a long arc. So that takes a little bit of time. And that's why everything seems so frustrating. And there are times when I am um, frustrated as well or pessimistic. But overall, I remain opt optimistic with the work and progress that is happening. And I remain optimistic that in few years, even with the geopolitical situation that is changing and things are changing around, I have a feeling that they're going to be in, in benefit of India. And um, as the as we get out of this, um, um, uh, you know, COVID um, pandemic, India looks much stronger than other Western nations at the moment, economically in every which way. So I feel all of this is going to come together soon and there will be changes that we will see. And most importantly, I think that Kashmir very quickly will become part of mainstream politics in um, India. It already has a lot of uh, changes have already happened, but I feel that it will join the mainstream political stream in India very soon. Overall uh, challenges as far as terrorism are concerned, they're not going to go away because what is Pakistani uh, army going to do? How will they claim their bread and butter? They have to send terrorists across. So that will happen, but Indian army is more than capable of handling that. And as far as Kashmir is concerned, we will, I think we will prevail. It just needs a little bit of patience. And on that note, I will end. And if there are any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Jay Magaji says, what's happening with JNK? What are your thoughts on the right to bear arms to Hindu in India and statehood and legislature to Jammu? Uh, um, right, right to bear arms. You know, in, in many uh, small places in Doda and other uh, hilly areas, uh, Indian government has experimented that. We have experimented with, um, uh, you know, local people having arms and being trained, um, especially in um, the border areas. And they've been successful as well. Um, so I am not opposed to that idea, especially in the border areas, but of course it has to be done, you know, in a very, uh, um, in a manner that is um, acceptable and, uh, you know, uh, that is accountable in the sense. So I'm not totally opposed to that idea. And I know that although we don't make a lot of song and dance about it, um, there are places where that happens. Even a way, if you remember, Punjab terrorism was actually um, weeded out like that. Because a lot of people, if you remember, in village areas, did take up arms and that was the only way to do it and uh, but of course we don't have to uh, this, this is between the state and the thing and I think there is some 
uh, in very small areas it does happen um, uh, like that but does the entire population now take up arms of course not you know that 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 won't be possible you know you can't have uh, people in srinagar moving with automatic guns now that, that's that's not going to happen um it also has to that also has to be done systematically um the other thing was about giving a separate statehood to jammu there's a huge constituency for it i personally am one of those who believe that jammu has suffered suffered is a understatement because of being tied to kashmir for no fault of theirs they have had to bear the brunt of terrorism that is in four districts in kashmir only remember terrorism is not spread all over kashmir it's in four districts of kashmir and that because of that terrorism in four districts of kashmir people of jammu and dogras have suffered a lot but i do not think government of india at the moment is or even in future is going to accept separate statehood for jammu they have their own security reasons for it they feel that it's a, the larger picture for it is not is is not beneficial for the state of india for the indian state so i don't think um state of um, you know uh, statehood to jammu is going to happen anytime soon but within the framework what can happen is that jammu gets its right um uh, you know rightful place in the political process and that can be worked on and that's what the limitation process is all about sana i do have a question when this uh, 370 was abrogated i read that the domicile law is actually a deterrent for people to come back because a lot of people have not been there for 15 years or something so yeah. it is actually um, you know two steps backwards rather than one step forward what do you think no 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 domicile law there are there are a lot of misconceptions about domicile law so first of all people who have left refugees like me who have left we can we just have to show our any document that we were born in kashmir or even a picture document is good enough or our um, ancestors or our grandparents were in kashmir we'll get the domicile status so that's not a problem for any hindus of kashmir hindus of kashmir have been they've already been getting domicile status so for them it's not a problem for non um, ethnic kashmiris now say for anybody from any state from the state of karnataka or from andhra or uh, from gujarat now wants to come um, um, and live in kashmir or buy land they have to be there for 15 years and um, that it's you know i don't think it works as a deterrent and i will tell you why because they can sit and you know on working there is no problem it's only the land that they have to wait for about 15 years um because stay jammu kashmir a lot of people from jammu region had asked for it and the reason they had asked for this domicile thing is because there are also domiciles every state in a way has gives uh, some kind of preferential treatment to their domiciles in terms of jobs 
this is why jammu uh, folks had stood up and they had said that we want 15 years there for that um, uh, you know that provision to be there because we don't want our people who have lived here all these lives not to get benefit of the jobs they should get the priority over anybody else for the state jobs so i felt initially they had a point but as i keep saying that this 15 years thing is not marked in stone it can be changed anytime anytime people together feel that this is not you know it can be reduced to three years because all states have this kind of law some people have some states have three years four years five years eight years all states have this law so they can change it to one year or two years or three years but there already are up another are already people of um, civil servants or bureaucrats who have been serving in kashmir they're not ethnic um, kashmiris or dogras who've been serving in kashmir in the bureaucracy and they've already lived there for 15 years so they're automatically um, um, eligible and they have been eligible already many of them have been given domicile certificates so a progress has been made there it's only for the new people who just decide to go um, to kashmir today suppose somebody from telangana wants to move so they have to wait for 15 years but otherwise if people are already living there and people of sons and daughters of bureaucrats who have studied there or bureaucrats who have been there or army folks who have been serving there for some time they are already eligible because they have done that 15 years thing so i don't think it's a complete deterrent because as i said jammu people had asked for that because they do want priority in government jobs what about the Kashmiri Pandits who fled in uh, 1990? They have not been there for 15 years. So they oh, are doesn't matter. doesn't matter. They, they immediately In fact, my mother just got the domicile certificate three months ago. Um, not even three months, just a couple of months ago. And um, she just had to, um, she, she had earlier certificates, she had her own certificates and everything. She's lived all her life there. So all she had to do was show some educational certificates that she had done her uh, bachelor's or things there. And she immediately got the certificate. It's, it's a very smooth process, by the way. So uh, all Kashmiri Pandits have been, are eligible, immediately eligible. Kashmiri Pandits who have not, forget about 90, people who, Exodus has been happening before that also. People who've moved in 47, people who've moved between 47 and 90, they are also immediately eligible. If they can just show that, you know, at some point, some ancestors lived there, uh, even a picture is good enough. So, as I said, we have increased the domiciles. We have increased the stakeholders with that domicile law. I'm, I'm, I'm very positive about this domicile law. Okay, thank you, Sunanda ji, for the wonderful discourse. Namaste, Rohit ji. I remember you from the last time as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Good to have you. Ah, uh, thanks. Um, so, uh. If we keep Article 370 abrogation aside and everything, uh, my question is more around the, the state of Jammu and Kashmir and, and how we see it panning out in the future. You said that, you know, now, uh, you know, only 2% of uh, the population is Hindus and rest are uh, others. And if I combine the fact that, uh, you know, as you rightly pointed out that very few people uh, wield the guns and they were terrorists, but uh, they had massive local support. Now these people will become the electorates and they are gonna, they're gonna throw their own representatives 
in the state. In that situation, what difference are we expecting? No, the point was at some point, uh, A, first of all, what difference will that make even when, uh, if they put their own representatives? The biggest thing is that there is no Jammu and Kashmir constitution anymore. They all have to follow Indian constitution now. Remember, Jammu and Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir had its own constitution and its own IPC bill, so IPC code, that has been thrown yeah. out. So that's a huge thing. They have to govern according to the constitution of India now. They cannot defy instead government of India. So that's a huge um, uh, thing. Another thing, the political process, when political process starts, the minorities, and minorities are not just Kashmiri Hindus, you know, minorities can be Shias of Kashmir also. Minorities can are Sikhs of Kashmir also. So they will have to come together and they will have to get into the political process somehow. It's, I, I, I don't have any doubts about that. They will have to organize themselves politically. And even though the demographics may be against them, but I think if different minorities come together, there, as we have seen in the past, in other experiments done in other states, the different minorities, when they come together, it, 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 you know, they can wield some significant, um, uh, you know, uh, clout. That is not to say that there will not be any kind of. It's it's going to be easy, or political parties just come up. Any any um, attempt at breaking the two, um, the house of Muftis and house of Abdullahs hasn't really succeeded, you know, even though, um, uh, you know, they, they don't have the kind of support they used to have, but it hasn't, you know, they have not been completely taken away from the picture. So they will continue to be there, these two um, families, and we'll have to see how much, the, how much people support them. But remember, Hurriyat doesn't exist anymore. Hurriyat has been completely dismantled. Uh, so Hurriyat is not going to be able to do any proxy candidates and all that they did. So there are mainstream, there is uh, Awami party that has the new party that has come up. So all these, all these political processes and political, um, uh, you know, um, um, permutations and combinations are happening. And then there is another um, um, option that um, Panun Kashmir is saying that, you know, um, carve out a homeland for uh, minorities for Kashmiri Pandits. I don't know how much government of India is willing to listen to that, but then that is one school of thought as well, that carve out uh, land for them where they can, a small union territory, then where they can sort of have their own political representatives and all. I don't think that is going to happen anytime soon though, but for the present, I do feel that the minority should come together and form as much as we hate it, the word voting block. So, I mean, uh, frankly, I, I, I find myself lacking in, in that confidence because the other set of people, when they are in minority, they create so much raka. And when they are in majority, and what we have seen that they've already done that. It's not that we need a proof. They have been doing it and consistently, as you rightfully say. Yeah. 
I mean, to me, I'm sorry. I I may sound very negative and pessimistic. No, no, no. That's understandable. I mean, there is it's a lot going to um, accept, and there is a lot going on, and it's not going to be easy. Um, but it has to be. Um, I I. I really don't see any um, easy way forward. I do feel that a we have two or three options in front of us. A there is an option of Pan Kashmir. We have to see the government of India must, I think, really talk to people of uh, to uh, the organization Pan Kashmir and see the viability of Pan Kashmir. And I think there is there is some merit to the idea. And um, then, of course, till that happens, I think the political process must not be in Kashmir if it starts and when it starts, it must not be left um, as, a, you know, empty as well. You know, we have to attack, for lack of a better word, from various fronts. So while there is a talk of Panam Kashmir going on, there is a pressure group being built for Panam Kashmir, there should also be a pressure group that uh, the political process should not just be left to two families of Kashmir. Otherwise, we will just return to status quo. Ma'am, do you think uh, uh, Ranbir Penal Code is still uh, working? And uh, uh, do you think Taliban will be a problem sooner or later in JNK? Uh, Ranbir Penal Code is not uh, working anymore. It is that that has been thrown out. So um, with the abrogation of Article 370, um, you know, it is the Indian Penal Code now. Um, with the, the Taliban question, um, a lot of people are asking about it. What is it going to happen? Any, um, any incident in Afghanistan has always had impact on Kashmir. If you remember, even in 1990, when, um, uh, how did the 1990 insurgency really start? It was when um, USSR pulled out and all these Mujahideens, they did not know what to do. Um, just a quick lesson, I mean, geopolitics lesson here that uh, all these Mujahideens who had guns and who had been trained and now uh, the war had collapsed in um, uh, Afghanistan, their next target was Kashmir and that's when they came to Kashmir and that's when Mujahideens or terrorists started coming to Kashmir. So we have known since 1990 that anything that happens in Kashmir has a direct bearing because then that, that changes things in Pakistan and then that changes things in um, Kashmir. It, it is, it's a domino effect and we know that. My sense right now, and it's very difficult to know what is going to happen in Afghanistan really, but my sense it has been a while now since um, United States pulled out, and it was hard to say last time when I was on Sangam Talks, but now many months have passed um, since then, and I think uh, Taliban this time, they are going to be, uh, it's not going to be as easy for them to be training terrorists, they may train terrorists, but sending them to India anymore. Because Indian state is not what it used to be in 1990. This is a very strong state. This is an Indian state of Balakot. This is an Indian state that has gone across, has sort of, uh, you know, changed the status quo that has changed the red line and gone and bombed the other side as well, even if gone in POK and other side. So I don't think it is that easy to start 
a full-fledged trouble in Kashmir anymore. But will we see five terrorists crossing over, ten terrorists crossing over, random killing here and there? Yes, that will continue because we live in that area. We live, look at who our neighbors are. I mean, Pakistan and the, the mothership of terrorism is Pakistan. And then they are doing all this mess in um, um, Afghanistan. And now they are, they probably are regretting the United States not being in the area after so many years. Because yesterday I saw um, Moeed Yusuf's, the Pakistan NSA statement that um, uh, Taliban is sending, um, foisting trouble in Pakistan. My best hope is that Taliban and Pakistanis keep bu themselves busy with each other while India goes on to become the five trillion economy. This is not a macro level political question. It's a very micro level human one on one. Uh, your parents and you were obliged to leave Kashmir. Uh, naturally, your home, land, whatever it is that you had there would have been taken over since repurposed in various ways. Now, when we talk about domicile status, that confers upon you the right to go back and buy fresh land or a home or whatever other than uh this deep sense of cultural belonging completely acknowledged completely respected but other than that what would take you back there considering the 30 years have passed and you've you know you've set up a new life your parents have set up a new life your your, your friends are not there anymore your livelihood is not there anymore so human at a very human level what would take you back your mother's got status why does she want to go back because of her house if you uh, have followed the news they have um, actually started a whole process of claiming displaced um, um, you know um, oh. displaced migrants they call it migrants and i completely deny that word but that is the official sure. word displaced sure. migrants property act according to that all the houses that we left back there including my home we can claim them back and we can get them any houses that were sold in distress sales because a lot of houses were sold in people had to leave and they needed the money and somebody came and um, um, one crore house was sold in five lakhs and they took five lakhs and they went any of those distress sales uh, you know are now going to be opened again and those houses can be claimed again so at a very micro level as you ask the question that you know what will take you back there our homes will take us back there our properties will take us back there because they're still there they haven't been you know we haven't given up claim on them the house that my father built um, uh, you know and with his um, as a government officer, you know, with very limited amount of money, the house that he built, you know, for a middle class family, that's all they have. So my mother wants to go and claim that house. My mother wants to claim back all her properties. Similarly, everyone wants to go back. I mean, in my, the question I know, and you were trying to be nice. The question really is, no, 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 thank you for that. The question really was, why should you go back? You have your lives now, you know, outside of Kashmir, like I do, then why should you go back? What is it that will take you back? For that, I have, you know, I have thought about it. And a lot of people talk about it within the community. 
the desire malika ji it is hard for me to explain but the pull and push that takes you back to your home and roots is so strong and is so powerful that it will push many of us back again maybe now it will take us a while to sort of you know go back and forth and end what we have here and start there maybe a lot of people my mother's generation are ready to go they are retired and they are ready to go and they want to start their own life there for my generation who have jobs outside and maybe it will be difficult because there are no jobs at the moment there let's face it there sure. we're not going to get the same kind of lifestyle immediately as we go but at least we'll have a home to go back to we will have we would have set up a base there and then we can keep going back and forth and maybe many of us will start some um um you know businesses there maybe many of us will find some things to go but at least let's create that process okay. let's not just say that oh nobody is willing to come back home then why why do we even want to go then we then we sort of walk into the um, narrative of terrorists that sure. these people wanted to go away and then why are we going and just to claim that place just to claim that place we're not going to go give it to islamists that easily no of so course let me assure you that there are a lot of people who are ready to go back so this is in um, as crude as it sounds the strata of my my strata let me now tell you yeah. that there are people who are living in squalid conditions in camps in jammu still they do not have any visible means of income there they are living on very small sustenance they will go back in a heartbeat jagti camp in um, uh, jammu they are living in worst conditions they are living in in jammu heat in 50 degrees they live under tin roofs you know in one room of um, homes they are ready to go back now so there are many people there are many people in jammu who are willing to go back now so i do not represent the entire gamut um of kashmiri hindus or a few people who are vocal on the platforms we don't represent the entire gamut of um, kashmiri hindus there are people nameless voiceless people whose voices don't get heard and who may not be as successful in their lives financially or economically but they they do want they to do go want back. to in which case ma'am my follow up question then is uh this this displaced migrants property this is the government reassuring people like yourselves that your homes will be restored to you now mm. 30 years have passed and someone else might be living there i mean there were thousands and lacks of kashmiri yeah, yeah, yeah. left right? so, taken over yes yes so what what does the government then offer to the for instance the family currently living in your home do they yeah. offer them alternate accommodation no because they already have uh i don't think there is any talk of offering them alternate accommodations because they have not they were not displaced they took it over as their additional property it's not like they had been displaced from somewhere or they were refugees somewhere so it was just that i live in this house and the house next door to me is now vacant and i went so the government will come back and say go back to your own house 
that household remains. So that is not something that the government is working on or should take into account because any of those houses that were occupied, they were not occupied. They were occupied as illegitimate occupiers. They were right. not occupied by people who needed sure. a, you know, um, a house for themselves or who were. So there is no question about it is um, it is just a matter of law and order situation and that's all it is as per the media and the national uh, legislature uh, events uh, 370 was abrogated has three uh, sorry 35 a to have been abrogated or how 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 is it going has the judiciary question been dismissed finished it doesn't 370 has been abrogated but 35a does not exist anymore in uh, they call it nesta nabud karbia it's finished it doesn't exist don't even talk about it i know this is a terrible blot on on hindustan india hindus and uh, there's no no soft words to describe it now as a practical person i would just like to ask this much we would like to go back, but how, I just want your comments on, will the pundits who go back take up arms to protect themselves or will they be dependent upon the government to protect them? Because we know it is not possible for any government to protect every, every individual in far off distant villages. We have seen that in Singrampura, and we have seen it in so many places. Yes. So, will the pundits take up arms yeah. to protect so, themselves? My sense is, first of all, if any pundit uh, picks up arms, will the constitution protect that person? That's my follow-up question to you. If the constitution does not spare that person, do not put the burden on this already tiny community, very tiny, 2% of the community to pick up arms now and then not be protected by the Indian constitution and be treated as murderers and killers. And then also um, that's, that is not a suggestion that can be given. People cannot be expected. If my mother goes there now, is she supposed to go back with an AK-47? She cannot do that. People, we should not expect citizens to pick up, except in some very small incidents, as I said, in hilly areas and some, you know, there are organizations formed where people take up arms. But to have an ordinary citizens now have guns in their place and expect them to use them and constitution will not protect them, it's not, it's it's not a a viable idea, even though it it sounds very good. So the question is then how does the government protect? Government cannot protect everyone. We're not going to have a platoon of armies sit in every muhalla, which is true. I, I understand that question. We're not going to have an army platoon sit in everyone. So what do we do? We create an environment like that. We create an environment where it is very, very difficult to kill one Kashmiri Hindu and get away with it. The deterrent. The deterrent should be you kill one minority and you will pay a very high price for it. Once that deterrent is put in place, I can assure you that targeted killings will not happen. 
even though there will be security the security terrorists will come and they will fight with the army and all that but i can tell you civilian killings will not happen the minute the government decides to impose the price of killing a civilian because what has happened in the past is that not one person has been um, uh, uh, you know, there has been no investigation and no one not one person has been made to face the law of the land so what kind of deterrent are we talking about these people the, even today they say unidentified gunmen came they killed and then um, we don't know what to do so the point now is and i think the indian government is understanding that that you you cannot run after that one person who pulled the trigger he will pull the trigger he'll either kill himself or he'll run away and you cannot find that you have to find the people who made that killing possible let me assure you sir no civilian will be killed by a terrorist unless there is support of local people around them if we make it very difficult for the local people to support terrorists if we put a very high price on it i can assure you you do will not need to ask hindus to pick up guns we just the government needs to do its bit about that and i think they are doing their bit if you see the recent killings that happened um the ogws or the overground workers were rounded up high prices have been paid and that's the only way to fight this that is the only way to fight terrorism cannot be fought by just terrorists will always be eliminated by indian army there is no question about it will never be under that misconception anybody who picks up a gun the there's a, a thing that give them 180 days and they will it's it's over for them their story is only for 180 days the indian um, army is or indian security forces are more than capable what we have to understand is that the local support has to change once that changes then you will not have to ask uh, uh, my 70 year old mother to take the gun <laughs> you are very optimistic unfortunately at my age i'm not very optimistic about the government of india which i find is a very very soft state it's a fact i mean uh, so i we it's do not changing, know sir. i can assure you it's changing how long, how long this government will be and who will come after 5 years or 10 years and uh, this is something we have to keep in mind and i said that this problem is not of of kashmiri pandits no only. it is elsewhere also agree to stand up with the people of kashmir pandits and do what is required to be done we cannot simply let you i mean sort of uh, lose all by yourself the country has to stand behind you which it is not doing at the moment yes one government has come which is doing something but the country by as such people as such has still not realized what has happened in kashmir it has not resonated anywhere else yeah in the in this country which is a very very tragic and sad part so that's, that's why platforms like sangam talk that is why we are doing all this so that people can understand governments will do what governments have to do but civil society at large people like us have to also um you know form pressure groups we also have to do our bit and um, you know sort of create this understanding or for example create this awareness amongst people 
um, that um, uh, you know whatever has happened in Kashmir should not happen again, and um, killings or targeted killings or terrorism will not be tolerated. There will be zero tolerance for terrorism. There will be a zero tolerance for any kind of terrorism. So my my uh, sense really is that the Indian overall consciousness is changing and it is being understood that terrorism or terrorists will not wield the kind of power they did even 20 years ago. The change doesn't seem visible right now, but it is happening at a, at a very um, subliminal um, level. Um, it is happening. If you go to Kashmir today and if you speak to local people there, they will tell you that their, for lack of a better word, veto has been taken away. They don't have the veto to put the, Indian, the gun to Indian government anymore. So those are little changes that are um, happening, but these are systemic changes. These take, as I said, this is, this is think of this as an 18 wheeler truck. It has to move. It will take a little bit of time. The governments will do what the governments have to do, but um, people like you and me, we also have to do our bet, our bit in creating the awareness. And I am not worried about, um, um, you know, um, in, in a democracy, governments will come and governments will go. But if the kind of renaissance we are seeing in India right now, I am, I am confident that the awakening or is, is here to stay. Even, you know, when the political process and it's an evolving door, governments come and go. Um, there are ups and downs in um, the democratic processes, which is to be expected. But I feel the awareness and the renaissance that is happening will make it very, very difficult for any political party now, uh, whoever comes to power, to now invite, um, uh, you know, terrorists for a cup of tea to um, the prime minister's house. That's not going to happen now. Indian um, population will not accept it. Sunanda, so I heard from Major Gaurav Arya on one of his shows. He says that uh, Afghanistan had a stake uh, in Kashmir as long as Pakistan was sponsoring it. And Pakistan was doing it as long as they were getting dollars from the US. Now Pakistan itself is broke. Uh, number two, the kind of help that the moment on 15th August, the first thing Pakistan, one of the Pakistan ministers said, said the Taliban will help us take Kashmir. Uh, Taliban are not as giving and as forgiving to Pakistan now as they thought. So now they're saying good, good Taliban, bad Taliban, you know. The Taliban is bad Taliban. The Afghan Taliban is a good Taliban. So um, I don't know. He sounded pretty positive and optimistic about JNK and about the non-role of Taliban or Afghanistan or even Pakistan now in JNK. Uh, what do you think? Um, as I said, I said, I am not saying the trouble will not happen. I'm optimistic because I think Indian foreign policy and India's security doctrine, security um, uh, apparatus is quite strong right now. 
compared to what it was in 1990s. Um, um, in fact, when I was doing my research yesterday, I was going back to these massacres. I was trying to find the dates and everything. You know, sometimes you forget. So I wanted the exact dates. And I was looking at Sangrampura massacre that I talked about earlier. Do you know when the Sangrampura massacre happened? We really officially did not have a prime minister because we were going from Vajpayee's government. Vajpayee had, um, after his first um, small 13 day government, and then Devagada. And in between this happened, there was no government in India. We would remember, if you remember people um, who remember that time, there was no government in India and we were going through prime ministers like, you know, uh, like it was nothing. So the kind of instability that 90s, that early 90s, you know, that saw in India and, you know, that's nowhere compared to where we are today. I mean, it's uh, Indian state is... Um, very, very powerful at the moment, and people know it. And um, now that we are part of the Quad, and now that we are part of the other global governance models, I do not think it is going to be as easy to start a full-fledged uh, insurgency in Kashmir. That is what I'm optimistic about. But do I think that um, one or two Ikaduka terrorists will not come over uh, every second day and uh, then they will not be shot down? I don't think so. They will keep coming. Ikaduka three, four, and they will keep getting killed by the... Um, Indian forces, Indian army in on the border. That's that's how it is. What can we do? We cannot change our uh, um, neighbors. What can we do? So as long as we have this mothership of terrorism next to us, we will have to deal with these terrorists coming over cross-border terrorism that will come from Afghanistan, that will come from Kashmir. So that will keep happening. Um, but will they be able to start a whole new insurgency in Kashmir? I don't think so. So when you talk optimistically, you sound like there is this uh, popular refrain we have in India, Modi hai to mumkin hai. No, no, I don't, I don't really think it is completely Modi hai to mumkin hai. I think it is more like an idea whose time has come. Because, you know, I, I do see, uh, I, you know, at a ground level, I see how people have changed now, how people have zero tolerance for a lot of things that they had tolerance for before. Are we seeing, is this exactly how the society should be? No, it shouldn't be. There are a lot of things, but, but there are, there is price to be paid now, for example, to, there is a political price to be paid now if you are inviting terrorists and um, uh, having conversations with them on a table across this, and there is political price to be paid. So that is the change that I'm talking about. You are not going to be able to do that anymore. You're not going to be able to do deals with the terrorists anymore, just to stay in power. So um, I really admire the the confidence which you show in the current process and how it is unfolding and and maybe because you probably are privy to a lot more details than what we are um or rather what i am so so that's really remarkable um please continue on that path so that's one second sometimes when i think about jammu and kashmir and what is happening in punjab now because punjab also went through uh, insurgency which was also responsible right and yeah. you see after a little while of 
so called stability normalcy and whatever <laughs> things are on the upswing again right and that is what bothers me that you know uh, and see we have a, uh, we have a strong government at the center the, the state has the political due political process and what not but still so so that 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 actually makes me wonder and 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 puts a question mark on a lot of things so that's one second so i would like to hear your comments about it uh, and and second is while with all of this happening a lot of uh, folks like you and your family and others who have been displaced or who, who have been evicted um forcefully um while uh, you folks are seeing all this as positive turn of events uh, and are thinking about going back what about the other set of population who actually was uh, was an accomplice and 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 participated in that genocide and eviction what is their mood what are they feeling about it they feeling about that oh now again uh, you folks are probably going to move back and all of that. i'm sure they're not very happy about it um because a lot of people were given to believe that azadi is around the corner in 1990 i can assure you a lot of people supported the terrorists went against indian state because they thought that pakistan is strong enough and indian state is not that strong this is the time to attack and azadi is around the corner a lot of people literally literally thought that in two or three months kashmir banega pakistan <laughs> they had mistaken the power of indian state it was not going to happen indian state is ready to take a lot of uh, you know uh, we can absorb a lot of losses that's not a good thing to say we should not absorb any losses but i'm saying at the time of crisis we are able to absorb a lot of losses and save our territory even in the worst of our times even in 90s we were able to do that so a lot of people at that time did feel that azadi was around the corner i i remember reading there was no whatsapp jokes those days but i remember jokes in the neighborhood uh, where they would say that oh we sleep in the night and in the morning we look outside the window to see ki abhi pakistan hai abhi hindustan hai ya pakistan ban gaya you know things like we used to hear those things said in uh, thing so that was the reason for them to support this pakistan uh, pakistan supported insurgency lot of water has flown under the jhelum since then pakistan has completely after august 5th after the abrogation of nine, um, article 370 what indian government has done indian government has a restored human rights in kashmir b it has also called the bluff of uh, pakistan now the extent of what um, a lot of people would have loved for pakistan to come and attack india after august 5th the maximum they did was create a kashmir day where everyone i think stands up for 5 minutes in solidarity for kashmir i think that's what they did. imran imran khan had said something like that that they will they will observe a kashmir day or something that is the extent of what pakistan can do at the moment so uh, you think people in kashmir are not seeing that they are seeing that they are seeing that 
you know that we are you know we gave up our lives and we we are giving up everything and what is what is this what are they doing because pakistan really was not interested in kashmir in that sense pakistan just wants to destroy india with thousand cuts we know that policy it's not nothing new to them if kashmir for example hypothetically bawan kare they were able to take kashmir then they will start punjab then if they do punjab then they will start somewhere else because the idea is to destroy india by thousand cuts kashmir is just one cut right where they you know so they they have seen what has happened in last 20 years they have seen the islamic republic of pakistan falling apart they have seen pakistan state of pakistan going to imf for 13 times to beg for money they have seen um, imran khan beg um uh, saudi um uh, you know um, uh, saudi kings house of saud for um you know loans they have seen how how insurgency themselves has destroyed pakistan they have seen pakistan's role in um, afghanistan they have seen uh, let me tell you one thing a lot of people in kashmir i um, mean um, the majority community in kashmir while they do want islamic state they do not want a taliban state by the way because they do want some rights they do not want women to be shot in um, um, stadiums they do not want women not to be allowed not to have rights you know they would like an islamic state a nice cozy islamic state but they don't want an um, taliban state except that there can be the only islamic state that is possible is every islamic state eventually becomes a taliban state you know um, look at turkey for example so um the way that system is they are given to radicalization they are given to the other side of this thing so to think of a moderate islamic state is is, is a misnomer a moderate islamic state doesn't exist so that is what they were hoping for they were hoping for a moderate islamic state shake them a small moderate islamic state in supported by pakistan that that um, um, anyone who is thinking individuals amongst them they understand it's not possible they they eventually they will also understand as pakistan disintegrates itself even more they will understand that it's for their own benefit that they support india and when that happens i'm not saying every single person 100% the population will do that they won't do that there will always be 15 16 year olds who will wield guns uh, who will get but i think a majority of them at one point will understand that it is in their interest to support india not because they love hindus or because of anything that will never happen but because the other side will finish them off there is no moderate islamic state happening anywhere so um, out of that um realization there might come support for uh, a democratic indian state that's that's my sense of how it's going to go uh, i have mentioning imran khan right now again i'll go back to one of the chat shows i saw on tv which said that uh, pakistan has come up with this new foreign policy yeah and they say that pakistan has always had just one foreign policy palestine kashmir palestine kashmir give me some money or sometimes it is give me some money in palestine and then kashmir so 
it's a it's an international migraine and we are just as i keep saying that we're not going to be able to change our neighbors we're not going to be able to change what we do so it's an it's a migraine that we will have to bear for um, you know the only thing is to sort of move and grow and become so big that pakistan just becomes a little irritant on our side i like that word international migraine uh, it's um, it was it's not my word it was said by madeline albright uh, former <laughs> uh, you know secretary of state for united states she said she described pakistan as international migraine <laughs> thank you very much they have much. a big role to play in, in <laughs> okay thank you very much thank, thank you, you thank you audience for joining in today uh, thank you so much thank you thank you namaste to everyone thank you for logging in thank you sangam talks once again always a pleasure to be with you aparna <laughs>